everybody and welcome back to the Sports Medicine Project. We are currently sitting in our juicy camper van for our final night in New Zealand before we fly back to Australia tomorrow. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling great. I'm ready to get back into work. I've been missing the podcast. I've been missing the Instagram, missing the connections and the learnings that I get communicating with people via the Instagram DM. But in saying that, it's been bloody good. We had four days off social media, which was awesome. And I feel totally refreshed, cleansed Mm. of anything. I do too. That was one of my, well, I'll talk about it later, Mm. but I was going to say it was one of my highs for the week is just how refreshed I feel and how ready I am to, to get back to work. And the... I guess the positive impact of a holiday that it can have on everything. Like I, I really do feel like there's so much value in just having a bit of a, a step away from, you know, everything work-related and just giving yourself that big mental refresh. I had no temptation to, to really, well, I did a couple of times, like look at the diary or, or go onto Slack or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to completely put that aside and, mm-hmm. and try and soak up the, the holiday. Yeah, on that, I don't know if... Because your, your clinic is in a different position to the clinic that I work. I I think depending on... If you're in a big organisation, I think it's a lot easier to switch completely off because there's lots of other people that can kind of do the work that you may need to do or follow up. But I think if you're in a smaller clinic, it's a little bit harder to switch off because you, are, you do play multiple roles within that clinic. Do you think Newcastle Performance is a big clinic? Well, you guys have four people, five people, so it's it's bigger, I guess. What what was the work that you felt like you had to do still? I I definitely was checking emails from patients that have asked me a question, and I feel, which isn't probably a good thing, and I I don't know how other people feel about this, but I I've regularly give my email out to patients because I would rather them ask me a question about something that wasn't clear, and generally. Most of the time, it takes me 20, 30 seconds to reply. Now, in now I say it out loud, and probably in reality, it's not a great idea because you might be replying to five or six emails over the week, which does distract you a little bit. But I don't know. I you, do that. Well, we, yeah. our fizzy, so when I set someone up on fizzy track, that I always say to patients, I've set you up on fizzy track. Now, that's come from my email. So if you've got any questions, reply to that and it'll come always straight to me. Mm. And I do. I get emails from patients from time to time, which I love. I, and I always say to them, look, if you've got any questions between now and next appointment, I'd way rather you reach out to me between appointments than hold on to it until then because it's very easy for me to reply to. So I, then why didn't you reply when you're on holiday? I didn't, didn't have check? any. You didn't emails. have any at all? No. Yeah, right. I think I, I always I always organise my... And I'm not saying that you didn't, but I put in a really big effort to make sure that my handovers are like very thorough and I've set my patients up or set them up really well so that they can self-manage or, you know, check in with someone else while I'm away as best as I can. Um, Yeah, I'm surprised. I've had one email from a case manager asking me for an update on someone but um, I also set up my automatic email reply to say to email the clinic if needed mm. and that patient seeing someone mm. else so someone else can deal with it. Yeah. Well, I don't have the capacity to hand anyone over because the other diaries of everyone else are full. So I've had to space people out. So I did have a couple of email, emails I did reply to, but most people knew and I told them I was going away. Most 
of the emails included a congratulations on the marathon because most of the patients that I give my email to are runners and we follow each other on Australia. Yeah, it was good. But I do think, I think that there, I don't know how you could objectively determine what gets a reply and what doesn't because you're distracted and you think about it. But I do think when you're on holiday and this is perhaps how much, I wouldn't say how much you value or care about work. But I definitely do reply to patients and I think there is value in doing it because yeah. most of the time it's a quick one. But then also in saying that you think about it, you're distracted, you should just not have it on your phone or I mean, laptop. if someone, if I did have emails from a patient asking me about something, I would definitely reply. I just didn't have any. Yeah. I love when people email me, when patients email me because mm. I, I find it, to me, it's like, oh, great. Something wasn't clear. Maybe I to me it's like you care about it because you're emailing me about it. Otherwise, they just wouldn't because there is no way. And we talk about this quite a lot, and we know from the research, a lot of the things that we say, no matter how good the analogy is, no matter how good the tone, the pitch, no how matter, no sorry, no matter how much we relate it to their story, there is a huge percentage. What is a percentage? It's like eighty nine percent. It's some huge percentage of what they actually take home. I think they absorb. Is that like 13 or is that 13 seconds? I thought it was 89% that they don't absorb on average of all the things that you say. How do you measure that though? Yeah, you would just just have that objective. Like in a study, what would that look like? Would that just look like someone reciting a big chunk of information and Mm. then a day later mm. someone's interviewing the person and saying, what do you remember from that that they said? It would probably be the general concepts do they remember. Like for an example, you know, if you're talking about you might have used, or 10 clinicians might use 10 different analogies to say that your foot type may not increase the risk of you developing hip pain. And you could word it whichever way, but as long as the patient can remember that concept, it may count. I don't know. I actually haven't read the studies. Yeah, I'm interested in that too, because also... You should, if you're interested, you should go and read the study. <laughs> yeah, okay, I you should. Do, you can do that. I'll, I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> I will. I'm interested because... I know you're not going to. So, let's get into the highs and lows. Okay. You want to start off with your your highs and lows? My highs, as I said, was just how refreshed I feel after a bit of time off and and feeling excited to go back to work. Um, It's nice working in in an environment where you're like kind of keen to get back into it. That's, Mm. That's a good feeling. My low of the week was a post that I saw from Femi. Uh, Femi is a, if you guys haven't heard of it before, it's a, inst- well, it's a, a group um, of females that program running for females around around the world. They're a really cool group. They do lots of, um, you know, women-empowered stuff and, I, and, and post a lot of really good content. They have a team of good, um, like, health professionals on their you know, on on their team as well, where they're getting all this good information from. But they did a post this week and it just made me a bit sad. Um, and it was saying, it said that 68% of women stop participating in sport because of their body image. It's still a sad reason for people to it not is. participate in sport, it even is. if it's not 68% or, you know, I'm sure that number varies day by day, mm. week by week, year by year. I yeah. get that. But maybe at one point in time, in a study that was conducted or a survey that was put out there, Mm. that is the number that came out of women that may not participate in sport on a particular day or week or whatever because of their body image. So is it 
they miss a sport or they just stop sport completely. And I think that Femi is an incredible movement. I would call it a movement. Yeah, Instagram page. A they movement. are they post some incredible empowering content and they've got run clubs all over Australia and they're really I guess promoting just women running, mm. regardless of speed, size, ethnicity. It's it's incredible. It really, really is. Is it not agreeable though that you know maybe men too a, a higher percentage of people let's call let's say that mm. may choose not to participate in sport because of their body image. Yeah, I'm fine with that statement if you say they may not choose to participate in sport. Which is just sad. And so I'm just yeah. saying it's a low because it's sad. Like that just hurts my heart a little bit. <laughs> so I'll I'll talk about <coughs> my yeah, highs and lows. Highs and lows. So a definite high for me and I don't know if you felt like this we did a lot of long distance low intensity efforts when we're running and like we were talking about we don't talk too much on our runs unless we're running on the flat I cannot stop thinking about clinical application of stories and quotes and things that I've just read everything that I think of I try and relate it back to clinical life for some reason I don't know why why it is and I had lots and lots passionate and you care about I had lots of thoughts and opinions and just things like you know I'm reading a, a I've read a couple of really good books but ways in which we can communicate better with patients that we know probably do work and I just thought while we were talking about stuff and we got into a couple of arguments on the runs talking about like ACLs and stuff. But Oh yeah, that was a good argument. Yeah, that was a good argument. We'll have to save that for the next one. I was thinking, you know, I don't ever ask my patients at the end of the consult, hey, if you were to go home and your spouse or your kids were to ask you what your diagnosis was and what were the likely contributors, what would you say? You know, I, I know that I've read papers that say that's a good way to see if the patient has understood the concept and the diagnoses and the, the pathomechanics of it. And I don't say that. And it's really important, I think, for them mm. to have an understanding. Just things like that that I thought, and I wrote a lot down, so it'll be good to kind of flesh them out over the Instagram. But yeah, that was a, a definite high and it didn't feel like work. It felt enjoyable. It's sometimes awkward. Not, not, uh, that's probably not the right word. It's funny, like it, it's hard to ask that without it saying sounding I don't know what I'm you trying could, to you say could, yeah, when you, at, like at the end of the consult it's it's weird like saying to the patient so if I had to ask you oh maybe maybe that's well, a it, me problem not a them not a real yeah. problem I think if you worded it in a way and saying hey listen and this is the way I was thinking of it on on our run actually today I was thinking if you said hey you know, we've got a lot of research and a lot of good studies to say that the better you have an understanding of what's going on in your body, actually the better the outcome will be. So I thought I wanted to ask you a question if your spouse or your kids were to say, you know, what did the podiatrist say you had going on? Or your doctor was to say, hey, what did the podiatrist do and say what you had going on? I'd just like to know what you would say. Yeah, that's a good idea. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so other other highs. I screenshotted so many studies. <clears throat> from Twitter that I'm so keen to read. I read a couple while we're over here, but not that many. So one was ibuprofen tested as a supplement during a trail marathon found that ibuprofen had no influence on physical performance. We know there are potential risks to using anti-inflammatories. So this shows there is really no reason to use them if there's no, so there's risk, but there's no effects on performance in the sense of it made them feel 
better or perform better. And another one. Phantom limb pain is a peripheral issue responding to nerve blocks but not sham. This refutes the common theme of this issue being a brain problem. So I tell patients that I see, and this is an interesting study that I'm going to have to read a lot more, that the the brain produces pain or that sensitivity as an output. Like obviously the peripheral tissue is stimulated, very, very simply speaking, to the brain output of nociception. Is it nociception or pain or sensitivity? Nociception goes up. Sorry, nociception goes up, brain output pain, generally speaking. And that's the way that I explain it mostly. And it's probably not, it's the simplest way I think to explain it. And I say to people, there's examples where people have phantom limb pain in the sense of they lost their leg, but they're still getting pain in that leg. And that just goes to show that there is no peripheral tissue there and they're still getting pain so it has to be produced somewhere else and we think it's the brain or the body but in this study they did nerve blocks to that area and again not within the brain but within the leg and it their pain stopped but they didn't respond to sham so what do you say about that that was really interesting mm. and i've seen on twitter there's been some stuff about the explained pain group talking about some things that, some issues with their stuff. But again, I haven't got into it, but that'll be tomorrow at the airport. Mm. And we're going, bang, paper, bang. Yeah, that's I'll go interesting. To the, go to the stewardess and say something about explain pain. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think so too. Mm. Other one, process goals have the largest effect on performance compared to performance goals. So when you set a goal in the future, focusing on the process generally leads to a better outcome, which I think people, and that's the whole trust the process thing. But yeah, they were my highs. Those studies were bloody awesome. What lows? Probably no lows. Oh, yeah. No, we'll talk about it later. I've been talking too long. What was your low? Now I want to know. Uh, just the slow running that we did today. I liked it. Yeah, it was good. But I feel good. I feel good too, but it was just slow. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> it took a long I time. How good was that massage, though? Massage I have one more high, mm-hmm. just quickly. Mm-hmm. My best friend got engaged. Yeah, that's exciting. Congratulations, Emma and Andre. That's a, that's a really big one. Yeah, that was exciting. Um, Great. Let's finish it there, hey? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. All right, then. Well, guys, we haven't really even introduced it at all, but you'll get it from the title, part two with, with Andy Bryant, and we'll speak to you guys next week. So straight away, I'm assessing someone and explaining what I'm seeing while I'm assessing, explaining how I assess. So they're, they're part of the process and they're feeling what I'm saying. You know, they're, um, they're able to experience what I'm saying. And and that might be like, look, you, you're one of the best shock absorbers I've ever seen, you know, like your foot is shock absorbing beautifully. In the past, we'd be like, wow, look at that foot. It's rolling in so much. We've got to stop that, you know. Yeah, how are you still alive? Look at that foot. <laughs> And then, but hey, look, when you get to that point where your big toe hits the ground, we want to see you pushing off more efficiently. And that mm-hmm. might be something we, we, we should we can work on that. We can be stronger in that. And this is how we're going to do that. Um, let's look how mobile your ankles are. Like, why is it, why are you so efficient at shock absorbing and why are you um, less efficient at pushing off, for example? I'm just using late. This is the lay terms that I use. Um, okay, is it a mobility issue? Let's work on some mobility. Is it a strength issue? Let's work on that. 
Um, and then I tend to not try not to overload someone with exercises and rehab. Um, like they're going to get exercises and rehab when they see me, but I don't want to give a list of 10 exercises. I'll tend to give them three, a very foot-specific one, an ankle-specific one, and a hip or a whole body-specific one. And, and, and then maybe just a little piece of gait retraining as well, like something that helps them use their foot in a different way or, you, or, or walk in a way that is going to change load on the thing that's sore. And so, specifics with exercise, like in regards, I mean, we all know short foot and, and, and doming, and this is only my opinion. I don't think that, depending on the population as well, and obviously seeing different, I don't think arch doming does enough because it's not enough of a stimulus. Like, yeah. what, what what progression can you do for people once they get over, I guess, sure. that part of using it? Yeah. So, um, Sportsmith did a post the other day from some guy in France that had, had said specifically. Um, you see all these people lifting their toes and doing toe yoga and using bands on their toes. Like, please, our foot is so strong. It has to do this thousands of times every day. Um, a few little bands aren't really going to cut it. And so um, I to that's what that post was saying, and I totally agree. Like, I will test if someone has the connection to be able to use their brain to move their feet. But that's just like asking someone if they can flex and unflex their <laughs> in their yeah. arm if, to be able to do a bicep curl. It's mm -hmm. going to take a while to get big biceps if all you're going to do is just move your arm back and forward without um, some load or, or bigger stimulus. And so um, doming, like short foot, I would hardly, I, I don't think I've ever written it in my notes. I might use it as part of that, um, you know, I said I do a foot exercise, integrate it into a calf, like a, um, an ankle exercise, often a calf raise variation, um, and then put it and then integrate that further into a whole body movement. And I would um, have someone short footing without me even mentioning it when they're just like, I call it conscious standing, for example, where I'm getting them aware of where the where the weight is in their foot, mm -hmm. like often in heel pain, they're standing on their heels, like 90% of the weight's on their heels. Um, or often, you know, like, so um, short foot will be a part of that, where I'm giving them a cue that will will bring that about, but understanding load. And, and that will be like step one. Step two will be um, like challenging, challenge, like, that's just with two feet. Step two will be doing it on one side. Step three might be, um, you know, challenging the balance and then loading the balance with a hinge or a squat pattern. Um, so we're getting hip controlling over the foot and integrating all that together. So that would be, that's like my progression for whole body exercise. I just get someone stand, like everyone stands like waiting for coffee, brushing their teeth, all these different times. We're loading our feet in a way that could be, well, I think is probably conducive to their injury mm. with like, Hundred, probably hundreds of minutes a day if we can have some effect on that time. Yeah. And, and so the benefit of the barefoot shoe or the shoe that doesn't affect your foot is gives you this ability to tune into what's going on with your feet. You know, you can actually start feeling what your feet are doing and then adjust your body accordingly and then make a habit of that. Um, at, the, at the foot level, um, so like, again, that's a foot exercise, but I integrate it with the whole rest of the body. At the foot level, in terms of intrinsic muscles, I think we tend to see, I tend to see, generally speaking, overactive extrinsics. And so we really um, want to settle them down. And, again, that could be a balance exercise that really tries to calm that ankle movement, that rapid ankle movement, um, and really try and fire up the intrinsic muscles of the foot, like um, a long flat toe um, pressing down, like even the idea of this toe, um, the toe exercises where you're lifting your toes, the lifting really is only beneficial to not tripping over when your leg is swinging through the air. 
Yeah. Like it doesn't have much functional effect as we push off and power through the foot. Mm. So we really want to only lift it so that we can push it down. So we, so depending on the issue, I'll be um, focusing on trying to fire up the, um, I'm going to hate the word, but activate the intrinsic <laughs> foot muscles of the, uh, yeah. the intrinsic foot muscles individually as required or wholly as required, right. depending on the situation. Um, so hardly ever would I actually prescribe towel crunching because it, bypasses the intrinsics and just fires up the extrinsics. Yeah. And I know that doming and towel crunching are the go-tos for podiatrists to do exor- foot exercises, and I don't teach either of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really focused on intrinsics. And then um, calf raises, like nearly everyone gets a variation of calf yeah. raises. We turn that into a gait retraining thing as well. Yeah. yeah. How are you testing if someone has, you know, overactive or underactive foot intrinsics yeah. versus extrinsics? Yeah, great question. I um, challenge myself with this very, very regularly. So you can see whether they've got overactive extrinsics because you see toe clawing, you see imbalance, you see the ankle moving at a million miles an hour when they're balancing. And, and if you think about what your ankle, the extrinsics should be doing, they're meant to be um, creating some stability, but they're kind of meant to be a spring, this on and off, on and off, um, load, unload, load, unload. And our, I think our intrinsics are meant to be creating some stability within the foot. And doing it like it's not black and that black and white. So um, I'm just visually seeing how how that's going. Um, often the, it might be a niggly Achilles, or it might be one of those um, extrinsic muscles that's um, painful. So you'd expect that that might be overused if it's painful. Um, I I have the little card from Michelle that does the um, dynamometer testing, yeah. and I saw that um, test totally butchered by some. People, what people would say, I'm not mentioning names, but at the forefront of foot rehab and strength recently, and I'm like, if this is what people are doing, they're, they're actually testing the extrinsics, not the intrinsics, and that test is all about the intrinsics. Hmm. Um, and so I find the test fiddly and um, and frustrating, and someone's going to get better at it because they practiced it a week ago, you know, yeah. like when, when I saw them, saw them last time. It's, yeah. uh, so I, I, I know it's um, research-based um, and has got a really good background for being um, for being legitimate, but I, I struggle to use it because I find it fiddly and annoying. I'm going with how, how their foot feels how they, and how well they can flatten their toes. The, like I said before, the forces involved in using those intrinsic when, when we're walking, running or moving are so great that I think... It's hard to um, measure. It's more of a, um, okay, this is the issue, as in this is the diagnosis. If we hit intrinsics, they're going to get stronger. That's going to have an effect, basically. Mm. So very find, clinical <laughs> as opposed to research, yeah. Do you find when when you're seeing people that, that are in pain, and we know, you know, people in pain, rightly so, can be, you know, they, they just want to be out of pain and they just want help with their pain. I mean, these things typically do help. Do you ever find, and I know some of the worries with clinicians is is doing this rehab or movement, they're concerned that they could just flare them up or make them worse. Um, yeah. How do you kind of educate, I guess, the patient about that? And we know it's inevitable. You will have flare-ups with rehab. It's more trying to manage the flare-ups. Do you find you see that you in clinically and then how do you educate your patients about that stuff when they're in shoes and exercise and things like that. This, this is the most difficult part of the job. This is why I take such a um, long assessment because you've got to find um, where someone's at in terms of um, where the, where to start the rehab. And so I think your assessment should be about finding out where they're at. 
So that's that's your starting point of rehab, or or if they're really in, um, flared up at that time, to regress it to this point, or if the skill level at, in the assessment is not high enough, regress it so their skill level when they get back to that point is better. So yeah. it's about um, to start with, um, and I'm I'm getting better at it. I think finding where they're at, you know, and then but then um, it's also giving instructions. Well, like I go told one guy to do a certain amount of calf raises. He did three times as much. And I had to focus on using the big toe. So he almost gave himself sesamoiditis, you know, over a three-week period. <laughs> you know, like, this is like, whoa, I yeah. really didn't communicate that well. You know, I better get better in that sense. It's not his fault. Um, it's a communication issue. So then we manage that. So, um, but uh, I tend to not see people really quickly. Like this, I, I start out by saying this is a long, slow process. In fact, one of the first things I say to people is your body's probably got this. In a year's time, you're probably going to go, oh, remember that heel pain I had, you know? Like if you look at the research, natural history is going to be looking after this. Mm. What we're trying to do is make you um, get over it quicker and maybe, and stop it happening again. That's what I, I feel you're here for me. I'm not going to fix you. I'm just going to give you the tools to, to hopefully get over it quicker and stop it happening again. But, you know, if you go and try and run a marathon, you only have to run 10K, this could happen again, you know? So I'm educating people to reframe why they have the pain and and what the rehab's going to look like as well. So then if they have a flare, so and then when they leave, I'll be saying, I say every time, just use me as a resource. If you're not sure about something we spoke about in an hour's time, send me a text and I'll reiterate it or I'll explain it in a different way. I'll send you a video of me explaining it. If you're not sure if you're doing the exercise right and I'm not going to see you for three or four weeks, I don't want you doing it um, not correctly for three weeks. I would rather you ask me if you're not sure, you know, like let's and, – and I saw someone three weeks ago. I'm seeing them in two weeks' time. Yesterday they sent a message saying oh, my ankles are flared up. I did a huge day on Sunday, 20,000 steps, moving house. Do you think it's because of that? I, she sent me an email. I rang her and it's like, one, I'm really glad that you could put those two things together, like the fact that you're now recognising when you did that, this is what the result was, as opposed to, oh, my feet are sore again. Why? You know, like to actually um, put those two things together. And and um, so I'm really glad that you've done that. Like um, that's a big step for this person. And then um, secondly, these are the things that I think you should do over the next few days. And she's got a pair of hockers from previous podiatrists and, and she's like really inflamed. I'm like, today is the next, is the day to wear your hockers, you know, like wear your hockers for a couple of days um, because that's going to help you settle your feet down. And then we um, slowly integrate back into your rehab and I'll see you in two weeks time, but call me if you need yeah. to. Basically. Yeah. That's yeah. What, um, what do you think the conventional podiatrist and physio over here? <laughs> Can, can learn from your treatment philosophy? Um, like, I, I would say, yeah, um, it's not, oh, well, it's not about what shoes, it's a little bit about what shoes to wear, but it's mostly about saying, okay, how's this human body meant to move and meant to um, function naturally? And let's give it the best environment to do that. So there's a whole lot of that um, rather than what do we have to add to this problem to make it better? It's more like what can we take away from this problem? How can we manage this so the person comes out the other side and more resilient person, not needing a whole lot of stuff, not needing to see their Cairo every week for, a, you know, like an yeah. adjustment. How, do, how, how can we make someone more resilient out of this process? Like I'd say that's a really important thing to have in your mind. Um, but also to spend time listening to people. To, if they could just... Um, hear people out. My initial consultation is an hour and a quarter and at least the first half an hour is just hearing what someone has to say and asking a million questions. Like some people even say, wow, you ask a lot of questions. Like I'm asking about 
their, so much detail about their day-to-day life because that, that's where the answers are, I think, in terms of um, and finding out where they're at, you know. So to spe- and I have the um, luxury of that because I'm in my own clinic. I, I bill the way I want to bill and I'm busy. But if you are in a clinic that's only letting you have like half an hour initial consultations or less, like it needs, it, it should change. Like you need to have time to spend with mm-hmm. someone, especially if you're busy, because if you only had half an hour and then you couldn't see them for time, for a period of time, because you're so busy, like over the next few weeks, it's like, it's going to be a real struggle to hear what they have to say and find out where they're at. It, it, and, you know, three years ago, I'd be like, all of, like I said before, all about the shoes. But now it's mostly about the client, like making it a client-focused treatment mm. and meeting them where they're at. Yeah, I think that's really good. And, um, like, I, I totally agree. I think so much of how we can provide value to to people is is just by listening to them and, and knowing that they feel listened to. So, yeah, yeah I totally agree. Um, I'm throwing you, like, a bit on the spot here, but um, where, where are we sitting at the moment in the literature around minimalist shoes and, uh, yeah, foot intrinsic muscle strengthening and things like that? Um, I love Luke Kelly's work. He's up in Brisbane, I think, where um, he found that, like, the idea of the intrinsics was that they um, held the arch up, I think, initially. That's what we used to think. But then he found when he anaesthetised the intrinsic muscles, um, the arch didn't change. There's no change in arch deformation when the intrinsic muscles weren't working. But the stiffness of the foot when um, the intrinsic muscles weren't working changed dramatically. So we know the intrinsics are... Uh, critical to that stiffening that pushing off phase of walking and running probably and so there's plenty of research there from his work i think would you agree blake i don't know yeah yeah i would definitely and it's only getting getting better it's good because it's such a hard area to research but yeah Yeah. you're right yeah Um, and so i mean when you look at that in terms of plantar heel pain if the plantar fasciitis is under too much load and and degrading and getting um you know uh getting sore because it's being overloaded then it makes sense that if the intrinsics aren't doing enough work, then the plantar fascia is going to be doing more of the work and getting sore. So how do we get a muscle to get stronger? We make the joints that it's uh, crossing move. Mm. And what do most conventional shoes do? They stop the joints of the midfoot moving um, as much as they could. They don't stop them moving totally. We know that. We know that um, a stiff shoe is not... um, stopping your foot moving and orthotic is not stopping your foot moving either but it's um it's changing the way it's moving and, and when you wear it for 30 or 40 years um it's a very long slow i think it's a very long slow degradation in the way the foot is meant to move we've mm. seen some research showing um a whole bunch of uh people put one in a vivo or in a minimal shoe for six months put the other one on foot in, foot muscle exercises test their muscles at the start test their muscles at the end of six months just wearing minimal shoes is increasing muscle size. The naysayers will say, oh, that's because the muscles are less efficient. And so the, a smaller muscle is more efficient. It's still doing the same thing. That's like saying Arnold Schwarzenegger is not efficient at lifting something, you know. Like mm. a bigger foot muscle tends to be a stronger foot muscle, a more cross-sectional area, area that type of stuff. So there's, um, there's research there. I don't know how good the research is i'm not an expert on that it's pretty good like i would i would challenge people listening to this to go out and 
and and have a have a real look. And obviously, you're never going to have perfect research, but I'm I'm not going to sit here and lie. I remember prepping, you know, in the years and talking with people and like yourself that are probably a little bit more polarizing than, than what you are, and going and looking at the research myself and going and looking going. Oh, far out! It's right again. Okay, great. I won't. I won't talk about that one because it's right. I'm trying to find the ones that sort my stuff, but it is. It's it's good, and we know. Yes, bigger muscles don't always correlate to stronger muscles, but there's got to be some give and take somewhere. So, yeah. and, and um, if you have a bias, you can find some research to find your bias. Yeah. Um, so that brings us back, and this is what Nick probably taught me from the Foot Collective to the first principles of um, how the body is designed to move. And really, we should be testing what a a conventional shoe is doing in a negative way to the foot rather than going, where's all the proof of minimal shoes? Like the the no, the, 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 the foot is designed to not have anything on it that changes its function. And so it, and it evolved that way over many, many years. And now we're saying that that's not the best way. Mm. We're saying that what we add to it makes it better. And, um, and so I have a problem with that. And with every other part of the body, we can find tons of research that show that strength and conditioning um, is the is the gold standard for rehabbing an ankle, and for rehabbing a knee, a hip, a back, a shoulder, a neck. Strength and conditioning is ticking the box. When we come to the foot, we go, let's support it. Mm. We had we had um, something heel pain. It was a like a continued education thing here in Melbourne last year. Heel pain support. Or strengthen, and it was looking, and it had three podiatrists talking about it, and they they were saying, and and looking at individual case studies, and at the end they all went support it. We need to support heel pain, but all of the cases had degraded with more and more support, and to the point where one of them snapped as an AFL footballer snapped his plantar fasciitis, plantar fascia, um, because they had been it had been unloaded for so long, you know, so. The foot is seen as some anomaly and the research in every other field is sh showing that it's not. Like, oh. I don't do any manual therapy in every, and, and this is another huge can of fish, a can of worms, I should say, um, that um, manual therapy, like we've got all these foot manipulations and all this type of stuff and, and I'm sure it feels good, but really is the human body um, designed to need mm. um, someone else to look after it? You know, it's not really. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the FMT crowd, I would have to, oh, it's ridiculous. Gliding the ankle, like, why do you need to do that? Just get them to do a calf raise, you know. Yeah, like, make it stronger. This is it, stronger. Yeah. Or um, teach them how to do it themselves and they can do it 10 times a day rather than come and see you three times a week. And they will, maybe they won't be as good at doing it themselves but one, um, each time, but they're doing it 10 times. You're equipping them with a tool that when they've got a stiff and tight ankle, they go, oh, I remember that. This is what I need to do rather than having to go back and see someone over and over again. It's a yeah. terrible business model, but it's, um, it's, it, it's a powerful um, educational thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go on, Sarah. What are you going to ask? Um, yeah. So I think a lot of what we're talking about is sort of, you know, uh, building general capacity for a day-to-day -day sense. But what about when we talk about performance and specifically running? I I would say that there's not much denying the fact that there is a role for the super shoes. Would you agree? 100%. And I know Blake is a huge fan. Um <laughs> You can't blame me. When I put that thing on, I'm, oh, I feel like Elliot Kuchogi. I don't know, but I feel like him. You're as tall as him, but there it is. <laughs> I'm probably about an extra 60 kilos. But, but we'll Maybe see. your haircut's similar as well, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I look after Sonia O'Sullivan, who's a world-class athlete in the in the past, and she says that she puts that shoe on. It's like someone put her a, a, something. Some some someone's pushing her from the small of the back. <laughs> yeah, and she says yeah. she goes to park run, and the guy that ran twenty-five minutes is now running twenty-three minutes. So yeah. this is an amazing tool, you know. Um, when I see elite athletes, so I saw a guy who's an elite sprinter, master sprinter, and he can like blow the charts away in terms of um in terms of calf strength. And so there's no way my little um, calf strengthening exercises and my little haphazard um, biometric programs are going to hit it. But I've got a great referral network here. And so I'll send them to like a great physio in the city, Nick Rees, who can test and measure. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Nick, yeah. Cool. Like he's a really good friend of mine who can test and measure and sports um, – and Luke Nelson is a chiropractor that just yeah. is down the road. And oh, Michelle, all, right. all the hub there. There's all these guys yeah. I follow on Instagram. <laughs> and and so Luke is great. He sends me all the barefoot research. Whenever he comes across something, he's sending me this good stuff. And I'm like, thanks, yeah. mate. Thanks, mate. I'm putting this, these tabs that I've got over there in case someone <laughs> asks me a question. Anyway, um, they so yeah, so I've got these people that test and measure far more than I do. I'm dealing with mostly population, mostly general population, and teaching and saying go to go to um, look up Catch to Five K if you want to run. Um, I've got um, I, I use a program for running for technique called Oldie at Faster, which is a guy in Sydney who's like a world class sixty five year old athlete and who's really um, designed barefoot running. Like he's got a great program. But then we've got Paul McKinnon here, the balance runner, who I went to for a lesson myself. He's like the world-class running technique type of person. So um, when it gets to elite athletes, I'm I'm saying you can use me. I've got a really good ability. Like I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I, I've got a good bullshit meter. Like if someone's saying you need this treatment over and over again, I'm like, hey, you know, you've got to find someone. So use me as a resource. I, I act as a resource for someone like that. Um, bounce stuff off me. Um, make sure you know, keep your other practitioners honest by coming and having a chat to me type of thing. Um, so in elite athletes, I often send them out to some extent. Um, or I might say, you know, let's um, I give them programs to be doing stuff when they're not in their super shoes. You know, like mm. it's like when I used to be an elite cyclist, I would train on a bike that was maybe four, uh, like maybe half again as heavy as my race bike because yeah. it was probably a good training effect. It was... Um, it, it, it lasted longer. It it didn't affect my performance. If anything, it might have increased it. But I'd go to my race bike for time trials, for good training sessions, for, um, you know, for um, races, obviously, similar to a, a shoe that elevates the heel um, in when someone's squatting. Of course, you're going to want to train with it if you are going to compete with it, if you're a power lifter or Olympic lifter. But you're not going to... I would say it's not ideal to walk around in a heeled shoe all the time if you're a powerlifter or an Olympic lifter. You should yeah. be getting some good ankle range of motion yourself. And you'll see these guys, they don't have ankle range of motion issues. They're not using that shoe to get over an ankle range of motion issue. They're using it as a performance thing. Yeah. And you see Kipchoge, he's using that shoe to increase his performance, not because he's got a running technique issue or because he's inefficient in his running or because he's got a, a weak foot. He's doing it to get um, to be... Uh, to use it for performance. And so I'm all for it. In fact, I even bought a pair of cushion shoes so that I could run 10K as fast as I could. I didn't buy it. What, what one did you get? Oh, you did, are they big wide <laughs> ones? You need to get a pair of the vapor flies, mate. You'd probably take 20 minutes off your 10K with that. <laughs> I'm a, uh, my 10, no, I can't go that much faster. It's <laughs> <laughs> a limit. You're at the ceiling. Oh, that's good. Um, that's good. So, Ultra, I got a pair of Ultra Escalantes to yeah. run um, my. 
brother-in-law wanted to run a slow marathon and I was going to keep him company. And I'm like, this is going to be a long time in no, no cushioning. So I bought, I got given those shoes to just do that. But then he bailed and I was really happy because it means I didn't have to do it. <laughs> Not because <laughs> of the shoe thing. I didn't want to run for four hours. <laughs> yeah. You got any runs coming up? Any races? Um, I'm having a break. I did a whole trail running series over winter. And, um, you know, like my body gets sore. Because I try, I've still got a bit of athlete mentality. I, like I raced one instead of just running one and I was sore for like three weeks. Yeah. Um, my feet were sore because it was really rocky. And when you're racing instead of where, watching where you step and the guy in hockers flying past me, just like running on a cushion and I'm like trying to pick down this rocky path. So yeah. I'm like going for it. I had sore feet for three weeks, you know, like it's, um, yeah. but I would say that's a human experience and that's what I'm about as opposed to, yeah. um, going as fast as I possibly could. Now, I'm 45, you know, so. <laughs> How, but, um, yeah. One question I wanted to ask, and I, we, I've saved this one to Alaska, and I think it's an important one, is how, like, transitioning, if someone's coming, you know, to, you know, any podiatrist and, you know, they don't have access to, to someone like yourself, how are you recommending, and we'll use two examples of someone with an orthotic in a shoe where, you know, we'll use heel pain, they've had a heel pain, they've had heel lifts, compression socks, taping, soft inner soles, it's gotten better. They feel really good. Then it's like, great, you don't need this inner sole anymore. How can we transition them out of the orthotic itself? And then also if they want to go to less of a shoe, how can we do that? What education, what recommendations are we giving? Because I think the, and I'm talking definitely for myself, the fear is it'll come back or I'll flare it up again or yeah, that, that kind of thing. So the education starts from when you put them in it, that mm. it's that, um, so that they don't have an expectation it's going to be there all the time. Yeah. Um, so talking about that, and then this is why I go to the lab up the road um, because people come to me and they are reliant on their orthotics and they don't want to be. So my brief is to help them get out of their orthotics by making their foot stronger, making them move better, and to decrease the control of their orthotic. And so I tend to um, put them in a shoe that's going to help their big toe work because I think an orthotic works like I reckon we used to think the orthotic helped the most at slowing down pronation or changing pronation, which we know it doesn't do yeah. that so much. I think they work more now because they create stiffness from the first MPJ to the heel so you can toe off with something that's quite rigid and help you be more efficient at pushing off. Mm -hmm. So we've got to work. So I've got them doing exercises to be better at efficiently pushing off, yeah. like a ton of calf raises, heaps of intrinsic foot strength, strength stuff, like localised. Mm -hmm. integrating into gait retraining, like actually walking in a way that's going to help them push off through the big toe. Um, and then um, I'm slowly decreasing their orthotic. So I grind out the um, medial arch of the orthotic or grind out whichever. And, and so it starts out rigid and then it softens and it softens. It's not actually changing shape, but it's changed, It's got. It's becoming more mobile yep. because the amount of people are in a really stiff device, which I know like your generation of podiatrists are using far less, the stiff mm -hmm. device. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then I, I'm explaining it like, they could be in it for three or four years, but then it's, I think they're working more proprioceptively mm -hmm. rather than um, changing anything. Changing and I, anything. Yeah. And I'm even saying to the person I put in it for that chronic heel pain, this is going to work proprioceptively. We don't see that it's changing angles. We're not seeing it changing movement. We're just seeing that the, the fact that you've got something up against your arch is changing the way the muscles in that area and the way your body's moving. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so therefore if, if you've you're also working on their movement patterns and strength, it's it's an easy 
sell, if that's what you have to do, to say that you don't need the orthotic anymore because you've slowly weaned them off. Like I've got one person who's weaning off orthotics over the last year, another one two years into weaning off orthotics. Mm. She comes in every, like every four months and I might change, just take, drop her down. But this is someone that was in a hocker and an orthotic at 28 because of a turf toe injury that was poorly managed yeah. and, and told you will be like that for the rest of your life, chronic pain syndrome, you know, like, and so... That's two years later, two years later, she can walk. Part of our feel good about your feet program is to go for a barefoot walk on the grass because she loves it. To um, you know, like to get up in the morning and not put your feet straight into your shoes. Yeah, <laughs> we've got her th- her orthotic now out of the hocker and into a minimalist shoe. So the orthotic is it's all about the orthotic now. We're just weaning, you know, mm. just dropping that down. But it's again finding somewhere where they meet and just working them out of out of it. And most podiatry practices would have. The grinding machine it's a it's a 30 second job you know like yeah, exactly. i even just pick up a pair up one guy pick them up on the way to work and drop them off on the way home on the days that he decides is helpful for me to do that you know yeah, yeah. and then f- footwear wise is it you know hocker down this end and yeah. then you know the barefoot down this end we know that people are going to be at, at different ends but probably better they're further down the other side to the minimalist end yeah Where, like do you just transition from shoe to shoe like Lots of cushion to moderate to less to, to whatever, or how, how do you how do you do that? So Even a less of a shoe. COVID here in Melbourne was a perfect storm because for two years people didn't wear shoes at home mostly, and so they've either gone back to their shoes and had pain, or they had pain because they were out of their shoes, and so you know, like just walking barefoot, they started getting pain. So, um, like I'm assessing how much they're barefoot anyway, I have what shoe they're in, um, how how well they function, and how much they're relying on that shoe in terms of like if I'm seeing watching them walk and then and watching them move and seeing, wow, that they are relying on the shoe a lot. It's going to be a lot slower process compared to, and this is that history that I'm taking, you know, finding out what they're wearing, how much they're moving without shoes on anyway. Like some people are 90% of the time without shoes and then hockers for 10% and they want to get into a minimalist shoe. It's it's like that's an easy transition. They're already without their shoes most of the time anyway. Yeah. Um, and also how much they want to get into a minimalist shoe. Like some people don't want to, and that's totally fine. Like I'm not here to tell everyone to go in a minimal shoe. I'm here to um, help people get to where they want mm. and where they're happy with, you know, like people just, some people I see want to be in minimal shoes and be, do a whole lot of barefoot stuff. And so we have to work a bit harder to get them there, but others are just wanting to get out of foot pain. And so you just put them in an ultra or a topo with a four mil drop. And yeah. like, they're like, where have these shoes been my whole life? You know, mm. and others don't want to change their shoe. And I'm educating them around rehab being a stopgap, but you know, like, yeah, I would say that they're probably still going to run into problems further down the track. <laughs> yeah, I got all right. We didn't really disagree on much at all. I didn't feel yeah. like it was, I knew this. Well, that's why I'm, I find it so promising to talk to you, Mike. So thanks. Yeah, but I, I appreciate. It. And I mean, and I'll we'll post this in the show notes as well. But I messaged you a maybe a month or a couple of weeks ago, asking for a couple of different shoes in the categories and you sent through some, some Instagram pages and things. So we'll put that in um, the show notes for people because I just, it was just a lack of knowledge. I just did not yeah. know. They're saying, what's a good latest shoe with plenty of room? I go, I don't know. I, I just didn't know. So it's good to have a good, and like you said, a pathway to even send patients to their Instagram page to have a look and then they can order offline off cycle and things. Yeah, and, they're, 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 and they're designing, they're they're like styling them as well, these pages. They're like going, yeah, oh, look, cool. you look like this in this here. But look, I look like this in this shoe as well. So yeah. got, it's quite um, handy. There's this whole movement around it. Um, yeah, so I think we talked about it being a real um, 
blind spot of podiatry that this is not being talked about. It needs to be like I've got a dream and whether it happens, maybe you can help it happen. <laughs> um, you know, third-year podiatry students get given a pair of Vivos at the start of the um, semester and they have to we get themselves into them and, um, you know, like a, how good a project would that be? And, and each week you're doing some looking into the different aspects of, of what being in a minimal shoe is as part of your lectures, but they're actually going through the process themselves. Not so they all become podiatrists like me, but so that when um, a, a client comes to them and says, I want to get into these shoes, they understand it. Because right now most podiatrists are saying no. Yeah, exactly. From And it's just from, it seems to you either they don't want to or they believe in the old model or it's lack of knowledge or there's, and I've talked about this with multiple podiatrists over the last week, there's the people that have started podiatry, the best, most logical, smartest biomechanical podiatrists yeah. in the world, and they, they don't understand this stuff or they've never practiced it, so they don't recommend it to anyone. So it's like you never get to to hear it from people other than people like yourself. So it's Yeah, the, run, the running shoe boom was also the boom of podiatry in the 60s. You know, yeah. like that's when we put heels and cushions in and that's when people started running as a recreation as opposed mm. to being athletes. Before that, they were wearing minimal shoes just about as, for, as athletic shoes. Yeah. And, and then podiatry came about, the biomechanics came about, orthotics, and it all came into this thing that is podiatry. And mm. so it's still a relatively young science. And I think yeah. we've got a great opportunity to go give us six months of a student's life and let the, let us um, have an effect on them so they understand natural human foot function better than any other health professional. I feel bad because I'm about to go and run in my vapor fly twos, which are the I just told you it's okay. <laughs> I've told you it's okay. Yeah, oh, that's right. And can we always joke because my feet, and this is, I don't think I've ever actually told this live on the podcast. He's got some ugly feet. But I, and Dust, Dusty Ward, if you're listening to this, so a friend of mine, he had size 10 shoes and he got a second set sent to him because the, the place had sent him the wrong pair of shoes. Anyway, he got another set of shoes and he goes, oh, do you want them? I said, oh, I, bought, I said, great. I bought him off him for $50. I'm a size 11 and a half and I wore these size 10s. And now I have like actual PIPJ and DIPJ deformity. And everyone ripped something like, you're a podiatrist, your feet are meant to be perfect. But I train, I train barefoot and I run mostly in minimal shoes. <laughs> I don't run in minimal shoes, but I, tra I train barefoot and I do try and do some movement stuff like that. Can I say, Blake, the most important thing is the shoe you wear to work every day. You're in that shoe for 40 well, hours a week. This is the thing. I mean, that's why I wanted, I'm in a pair of RMs. Yeah, uh, shocking. I, I, you know, what, what shoe would you recommend for a work boot? Because it needs to be protective because we're dealing with scalpels and things like that. And I know you wear barefoot to work and I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wear whatever minimal shoe I've got on. Yeah. Um, but I, I wear, I dress very casually for work these days. Mm. Um, I, the Vivo have a beautiful RA. Yeah, RA. Um, they've even got the RA Lux, which looks really shiny as well. Yeah. And then there's, there's Prime Trotter which is this beautiful brand in uh, in the UK that make a beautiful boot that is actually foot-shaped. Because mm, be you could do all the training at the gym barefoot. You could do all the toe exercises you like. If you're wearing your RMs about 40 hours a week, it's like you're just like no yeah. point. But then I don't have – and I've got the RM belt to match. Then people won't think I'm cool if I don't have double RM. I'm actually going to get a pair of those. And if I get pain, I'm coming to Melbourne. <laughs> but that's good so and that's that same thing just like of knowledge i just i didn't know um but yeah. i see the value in it so yeah, yeah. we'll see Mate, thank cool. you so much so for, for coming on i know you've got a, a patient now yeah, but do, yeah. super appreciate it's it cool. and yeah mate, we'll, we'll talk soon thanks yeah. so much andy thank you